Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, June 25th, 2010. Got an interesting program for you today. Get out pen and paper. Get ready to take notes. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. We work from the idea here that God, God's Word is true, that it's historically accurate, that it's reliable, that it's inspired, that it's inerrant, that it's authoritative, all of those things. That's the, the premises that we work from here. And so when people are saying things in the name of God that contradict the word of God, that well, then there's some problems. So those are the assumptions that we work with here, and we call it a daily dose of biblical discernment. Now, today is Friday, and uh, normally on Fridays we do Friday Light, which means that I play a lecture and and it's something that I consider to be good. And I even have don't have a problem with playing lectures from people that I don't agree with 100%. For instance, uh, you know, we've recently had John MacArthur on the program talking about original sin. Now, there's plenty of disagreements between uh, what I believe teach and confess and what John MacArthur believes teaches and confesses. However, when MacArthur gets it right, I want to pass it along because I think that uh, it's worth praising. Do I consider MacArthur to be a brother in Christ? You, bet you, you better believe I do. And uh, and so, you know, those are the ways to think. Now, one of the things I have all I also do is I invite people onto the program and I interview them whom I disagree with and uh, who with whom I have profound and probably irreconcilable theological differences. And when I do those debates, uh, not debates, sorry, when I do those interviews, you'll notice that I don't debate with them. And there's a reason why. And that is is because I think it's imperative. It's, it's absolutely critical that when I do an interview, the goal is to let that person speak, to let that person get their thoughts out so that you can hear them and so that you can understand where they're coming from. 
The last time I did an interview like that was with Phil Shepard, the uh, whiskey preacher, one of the outlaw preachers and one of the guys in the in the greater emergent church movement. Today, I have someone similar on. And uh, this is a gentleman whom I have not met, but I've had several email exchanges with, and I've actually commented on uh, several of his pieces. And uh, his name is George Ellerick, and he is a blogger, he's an author, and he's uh, part of the greater emergent movement. And uh, I have invi- I have invited him on to uh, to do the same thing with him as I as I have with other people whom I disagree with, and that's to have a conversation and really try to tease out. Uh, their thoughts and thinking on on different ideas, and also to help you understand their story and how they came to believe what they believe. Uh, George Ellerick, being an emergent, is is a very interesting gentleman, and his ideas are far from uh, historically Christian and orthodox. And uh, and that being the case, uh, I wanted to have a conversation with him in order to let him speak and to get his thoughts out, so that you can hear for yourself. What it is that he, what he, where he is, and what he thinks, and so that's what we're going to be doing today. The entire program will consist of me playing the uh, interview that I conducted with George Ellerick. He's in the UK, and uh, we were able to communicate with each other via Skype. And uh, and I, I I gotta admit, George is a likable guy, and uh, you know I, he's rather intriguing and fascinating, and you know very little. There's very little that I agree with him on. But that being the case, I think it's fair to be kind and nice and show the love of Christ and to give him an opportunity to share his ideas. The reason I asked you to get out some pen and paper is because you'll notice that the questions that I asked George, especially in the meaty uh, middle portion of the interview, have to do with basic Christian doctrines. Um, I asked him about the Word of God. Uh, I asked him about the nature of God. Uh, uh, monotheism versus pluralism, and it, have him explain things like that. Who was Jesus Christ? What was he doing on the cross? Um, what's the gospel? Uh, can we re- can we trust? Uh, you know, can we trust the historical reliability and eyewitness testimony of the gospels themselves? And then, you know, ultimately, what is uh, what's the end of all of this? What's his eschatology? And so, uh, what I wanted to do with him was to kind of get a you know, you know to get him to explain his theology on a broad spectrum of topics theologically that are classical uh, categories and let him speak for himself. And I'm going to do the same thing with um, uh, with George Ellerick's interview as I did with uh, Phil Shepard's, and that is, is that I'm not going to provide a debrief on it immediately. Instead, uh, one of the things I would like for you all to do is to start taking some of these discernment skills that I have been modeling and using here on this radio program and begin to put them into practice yourself. And so we've, you know, with the Whiskey Preacher interview, I've uh, read two really well done um, emails where listeners have provided the uh, the comparison between what was said and what the Bible teaches. And so I'm going to invite you all to send in your emails and uh, put the subject line George Ellerick Debrief and, uh, and, and providing you with an opportunity for you to interact with uh, the things that George Ellerick says that he believes and um, and then compare that to what God's Word says. So the idea is, is that uh, I'm not going to immediately provide a debrief. The idea is I want to see what you all can do with it. Start 
start taking notes, start putting the stuff into practice and, and dig into your Bible and do the comparative work and, uh, and, uh, and start, you know, cutting your own teeth on this, if you would. And so without any further ado, here is uh, the first portion of my interview earlier today uh, with George Ellerick. All right, on the line uh, via Skype from the United Kingdom, and there, you know, there in uh, Europe, I've got on the line George Ellerick, who is an emergent author and prolific blogger, and also uh, a, a editorial contributor to the Huffington Post religion section. Uh, George, thanks for coming on, fighting for the faith. Thanks, Chris, for having me. I really appreciate just the invitation to come and share with you at, at your table. I'm looking forward to the conversation. I, I am too. Now, now, obviously, you and I are kind of worlds apart theologically, but this is really an opportunity for you to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to the theology that you hold. And, uh, and I'll try to ask some questions along the line that will uh, give you an opportunity to better flesh out uh, some of your beliefs. Tell us about uh, tell us about yourself. How how did you come to be emergent? Who were your big influences, and uh, and you know how did you come to you know the conclusions that you've come to, and and write about the things that you write about? Great question. Um, I basically just sent out for the emergent kit that cost about nineteen ninety five. No, no. Um, <laughs> Uh, I think for me, and and here's here's I think the the odd thing, um, and and maybe a not so odd thing about me and um, how I've come to where I'm at theologically speaking. Um, my whole deconstruction started about I don't know four or five years ago. Okay. I mean this this was already I mean basically um, being out of college for years already, and um, I just started actually. To be honest with you, I, I kind of tripped over uh, a bit of Rob Bell's work and um, just started reading some of his stuff. And um, I think that is what inspired me to kind of dig deeper. And when I say dig deeper, I mean in terms of understanding the kind of Hebraic mindset, the Aramaic language, um, and just basically the general Jewish nuances that sometimes we tend to miss when we kind of jump into Scripture. Okay. And even some even some of the sermons that we that we hear, and so um, for me, I think a, a, along with that, that kind of um, opened me up to some other authors like Brian McLaren, um, Bart Ehrman, um, Karen Armstrong, and so kind of these. I kind of pulled all these people together, and I mean, for me, what I was I was trying to do wasn't trying to deconstruct, devalue cheapen my faith or cheapen the Bible, cheapen God, cheapen any part of my experience. In fact, for me, my desire was actually just to dig deeper into the message of Jesus, okay. dig deeper into the message of Scripture. And so, I mean, for me, that is kind of where I'm at, I mean, as as far as in terms of where I've come from. Okay. So Rob Bell was instrumental kind of getting you into the door, into kind of the whole postmodern emergent conversation and that led you to go deeper, and then you found like Brian McLaren and other authors. Now you, you talked about the Hebraic mindset and uh, Aramaic. Now, do, have you officially learned Aramaic or Hebrew? Have you studied these languages? I do have experience um, as far as college work in in uh, Hebrew and Greek. Okay, um, but as you know, when you go to university, they're they're more than just basically cursory 
kind of here's here's some general stuff on it. I mean, basically, my background now involves a lot of study um, and and also kind of interviewing, interacting with um, just um, uh, uh, scholars like Hebrew scholars. Sorry. Okay, and so so that kind of explains. Uh, why you often quote uh, uh, Jewish rabbis when you are working on pieces? You kind of you pull from you pull from the uh, the current uh, Judaism uh, scholarship as well as ancient. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, no, no, actually, you're pretty much spot on. So that was a, an English thing. Yeah, you're 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 definitely right on. I mean, um, I think it's it's a bit of of a hybrid thing. I mean, I do talk as you just said with with. Um, you know, um, local Jewish rabbis, um, as as well as some that are um, just friends that are online that uh-huh. contact, as well as just pulling from um, ancient resources. Okay. Because you know, it would be I mean, it would be very hard to talk to some ancient rabbis unless you had some really strong smelling salts. So. Okay. Um, let me let me. Let me go a little farther back. Were you raised in the church? I mean, uh, were you? I mean, you grew up in California. Uh, I grew up in California, and and you know uh, the best way I could describe it is is that you know the, spiritually it's a hodgepodge of kind of everything. I think California <laughs> was postmodern before anybody else was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with you. Yeah, um, well, I mean, I don't know how far back you want me to go, but I mean, I can tell you a bit of my childhood if 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 that kind of will give you a window. Okay, sure. Um, well, I was adopted um, when I was five. Okay. And um, adopted. Uh, well, I mean, I was I, I was Catholic for like the first five years, but you know, up until the age of five, you're not you don't even know what Catholic means, right? Um, and so when I was adopted, I, I was adopted into I don't know. I'm, I was adopted into a Christian home, and um, I guess the reason why you heard me struggling is because my foster mom, she is and still remains, but even was more so than religiously tolerant. Okay. And, um. And, and my foster father w- was and is Catholic, and so um, that pretty much from the from five to eighteen is when I was hanging out with them. And so what I mean by religiously tolerant was is she did require us to go to church, and it was a non denominational Christian church. But while we while we were all growing up, she also invited the Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses in for home lessons um, at least twice while I was there. So. Um, like I think at the age of eight or nine, and then they came when I was about fourteen or fifteen. Okay. And so, um, you know, she. But and here's the irony: um, anytime any of us had ever expressed any interest in it, she would be very adamant that we um, not follow in that path, but remain in the Christian path. But she basically just wanted us to have the exposure. Okay, so you went to a non-denominational. Christian church and your mom was kind of eclectic, but there was some limits then to it. And, there you go. Okay, I got it. And but your dad is is uh, Roman Catholic, so uh, did he worship separately than your uh, than your mom? Did he go to mass and your mom went to the uh, the non denominational church? Definitely. Well, actually, in fact, it even <laughs> it's even more Jerry Springer than that. Um, oh wow! Like yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I'm, I mean, don't worry. There's no midgets or anything in there. But I mean, like. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is is I mean yes I mean Ed, I mean I think simplistically yes the answer is yes but um I think my my mom up until I was about uh, well pretty much until I moved out she didn't step foot in a church because before I was adopted 
probably about five years before I was adopted, she walked into um, a church, and this was probably back in the 70s. Um, and uh, the pastor approached her and basically requested that she never come back to the church again because she decided to wear pants. And, you know, of course, in uh. that time, I guess. It was just completely unacceptable for women to wear pants. And so that really, really set her off, I mean, as as far as having a bad taste in her mouth um, okay. with the church in general, you, you know? Right. So kind of a little bit of legalism there. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah. So, okay, what did you study when you went to college and where did you, uh, where did you go to the university at? Uh, I went to California Baptist University in Riverside. Are California. you serious? You were at Cal Baptist. Yeah. What, what year did you graduate? Uh, well, I've, I've got to be honest. I mean, this has been a long time coming. I finally graduated. Okay. Um, and, uh, what I mean to say is, I mean, I've, I finished my degree. It was just paying off debt to actually get my, so, I mean, I guess if you want to be technical, I graduated in 2001. Okay. Yeah. The reason I say that is because, uh, when I was at uh, Christ College in Irvine, which is now Concordia University, our our, our basketball teams and volleyball teams would play Cal Baptist. And so you guys were kind (laughs) of like a rival to us. And so, you know, I always enjoyed beating you guys, but, you know, or at least sitting in the stands (laughs) while you were getting a good thrashing by our volleyball team, you know. Yeah. I totally remember you guys. Actually, yeah. We we just have like really, really just like give you guys bad looks and stuff. Right, yeah. And and whereas you know, because we were Lutherans, we would just taunt you to your face. And actually I think we were using hookah dances long uh hookah dances, but long before yeah, th- those were even fashionable. So Yeah. <laughs> You brought the big old dance in, huh? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, no. That's I, why we lost all the time. Right, because we would just uh, psychologically intimidate you guys. Yeah. So, a- anyway, th- but that was during the '90s. You know what did we know? Uh, anyway, so okay, so you you, you studied the Cal Baptist. You you learned a little bit of Greek and Hebrew along the way. You're you're you you're obviously applying yourself postgraduate to you know trying to unravel some of this the Hebraic. And, uh, and, you know, and Hebrew cultural aspects to the scriptures. And you were inspired to do this by Rob Bell, which led you then into the emergent conversation. So do you, are you uh, attending an emergent cohort there in the UK? Do you attend a church? What, what, what are you currently doing, uh, when it comes to being in some kind of a community of, of believers? Well, um, as, as far as the cohort, I'm actually the actually leader of a cohort here. So we, we do, we meet about, I don't know, every couple of months. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, just in a local dive or something like that. And then as, as far as community and church, um, we live on the same kind of like land as my, uh, wife's, um, parents. And so we kind of do church, like the kind of home church thing and, and we'll occasionally go out and, um, go to, uh, you know, some local church or something like that. Okay. But I mean, that, I mean, basically the expression of church for us is a lot more organic and less organized, if that makes sense. Okay, sure. I've, I've, I've been many emergent conversations and conferences. I'm, I'm well-versed and familiar with the variety of different ways in which they uh, organically do church and cohorts and things like that. So, okay. Um, so recently you wrote a piece uh, that made it sound like uh, you believed in polytheism. I, I understand that pluralism is a is a big aspect of the emergent church, but I'd never seen anybody write anything that made it look like they believed that there was more than one God. What what can you kind of help me understand your thinking behind that, and maybe clear up maybe some misunderstandings that I have about that piece? 
Well, yeah. I mean, as as far as polytheism, I mean, I don't know if I would personally attribute myself to even that that belief system. What I think what I was trying to get across and maybe and I'm even willing to say that I may have even written it wrong um, is is basically that in my head, the the uh, way that I've I've come to see it is that other religions have basically tried to understand God, this this one God through their religious expression. And so um, now out of that could possibly um basically have another what is it have another interpretation of these other gods and so what i was dealing with um in in that one wasn't only just the idea of what other religions thought of god like for example in the hindu religion um some and this is a small sect of um hindus uh believe that there actually is one god and so there's actually a section of that article where i where i actually talk about vishnu now if you know about the pantheon, Vishnu is just part of the pantheon as well. But there's a specific small sect that actually believe that Vishnu was was the one God. Or like, for example, Allah in Islam is the one God. And it was really interesting, Chris, because um, I just came back from doing some human rights work up in uh, Pakistan in this uh, last November. Mm hmm. And um, I spent a lot of time with the kind of Pakistani community, which, as you probably are aware of, there's a huge and large portion of Islam. I mean, as as the main religious expression in in that area. Mm -hmm. And it was really intriguing because I would just have a conversations with people and um, they didn't know whether I was Christian or not. They didn't know if, you know, if I was Islamic or not. They but they were very open about their faith. And I mean, they would approach me and say, Listen, can you please, you know, pray to God? But what I thought was very interesting is none of them during my month there were actually ever using the word Allah. And um, they just assumed that I knew who they were talking about. And what was really interesting is, is I kind of came away with this realization that, you know what? I'm the one who's making all these presuppositions that Allah is a different God. I am I am filtering through my westernized view of Christianity, my westernized understanding of scripture, and just assuming that basically their view must be completely alternative in terms of terminology for God. Okay, so let me see if I can circle back and, and, and clarify a couple things then. So yeah, yeah, one thing you said is that you, you said about the talking about the one God revealed through different religious expressions. Are you are Are you making the claim then that uh, that the one true God reveals himself as Yahweh of the Jews, the one true God reveals himself as Allah of Islam, the one true God reveals himself as Vishnu of the of the Hindus. Is that the idea? Definitely, yeah. I would I would definitely say that basically if if God is that big and if we claim that that God is that big, then I don't know if we should be espousing ourselves to some sort of rubric that says he isn't. Okay, so then pretty much all of these different religions, they're all maybe different facets or expressions of the of the one true God. Yeah, I mean I would I would even go a step further and say that they're struggling through it. So I mean is 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 there a right way to view God? I mean I I I definitely personally I'm on a journey where I'm struggling with 
an answer for that question. Okay. I mean, if you would have talked 10 years ago, I would have probably said, yeah, definitely, because, you know, here's here's the reasons. Da, 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 da. But I think what I've come to understand, especially now, probably in the last, uh, I don't know, two months, I've started shifting a lot of my focus on the historical development of Yahweh and the historical development of the neighboring gods and um, 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 in in terms of their relationship to the uh, Israelites, especially in the Old Testament. Okay. Now, l- l- let me just ask a couple of cl- clarifying questions then, because I, I don't really know how to quite label this. You know, maybe it's kind of like pluralistic monotheism as, a, as maybe a working title for the position that you're describing to me. In the Old Testament in particular, I mean, we have, uh, if you've read the book of Jeremiah or Ezekiel or the book of Isaiah, you have Yahweh of the uh, Hebrew Bible basically claiming exclusively for himself that he is God. How how would you reconcile like the story of uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel where uh, where it's a showdown between uh, the prophet Elijah and the prophets of Baal and Asherah? They're, they're, they're there and... You know, and basically the showdown is is that if if Yahweh is God, worship Him; if Baal is God, worship Him. Him, and uh, you've got this story where uh, Baal doesn't show up. He, uh, he, you know, despite the fact that his followers are constant, you know, that they're, they're they're kind of going crazy to the point of uh, cutting themselves and things like that to get uh, Baal's attention, and he doesn't show up. How, how does that that story work into this theology that you're kind of forming and and working with currently in your journey? Good question. I mean, I think for me, when when I actually hear that story, um, there's there's actually two ways I can respond to this. But I mean, one is that the way that I understand it is is basically if you ever see Yahweh or God or you know however you want to refer to him that he's referred to in scripture is is basically dealing with the gods who are oppressive so here you have the god baal who's telling and instructing people listen one of the ways that you can worship me or i would even actually reverse that and say one of the ways that the people are interpreting how they think their god is instructing them to worship him is that they cut themselves now, as as you know, I mean, the uh, Hebrew God, the uh, Jewish God is very much against that idea. And so I think it's 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 definitively dealing with a people's view of their God. Right. And and so the way that I see it is actually God is not necessarily condemning them for their belief in that God. He's condemning their behavior in terms of their relationship to that God. There was all, there was also human sacrifice in the worship of Baal as well as uh, Molech. Yeah, definitely. And as you know, also in the history of Jewish worship, they also um, had that from time to time. I mean, you 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 almost see the nuances, although it doesn't go through with it with Abraham. And so that's even dealing with the with the historical element, pre-biblical historical element of the Israelites way of doing life mm-hmm. because as you know, there's, there's this midrashic story. That's a Jewish commentary that, that basically shows or, or tells the story of Abraham growing up with a father who was ultimately uh, pluralistic, but it wasn't just that he was pluralistic. It was that he was worshiping gods who would go out 
and basically incite riots and hurt and oppress other people. And so what it seems like is basically it does seem on a first reading that God is promoting non-pluralism. But what I think is actually being promoted is, listen, you actually need to interact with gods who, who, who promote the, the same values as Yahweh, right? Yeah. Now, I, I also think that there's another element is also that we, we kind of look at it as, as God informing Israel. Mm-hmm. But I think sometimes, I mean, just like Blaise Pascal once said, you know, um, we, God made man in his image and we return the favor. And so I think um, um, some of the Bible gets misconstrued as these hardcore, you know, not to be questioned theological concepts. And yet what I think what, what we fail to recognize sometimes is that these are written by, by, by men and, and compiled to basically share with the world their expression and their understanding and their experience of God. Okay. Uh, just for clarification's sake, uh, can you define pluralism? What do you mean when you use that term? I mean, basically, when, when I use pluralism, I mean, I, I use it in the kind of general sense of many, you know, many as in many different, um, so not necessarily homogenous, like, Homogenous. Sorry, homogenous. Yeah, I I, I know the word. It's really hard to pronounce. I've tripped over it myself. Don't feel bad. Yeah, hooked on phonics. Um, but yeah, so the kind of just homogenous, um, the kind of homogenous idea behind what I think monotheism almost gets blamed for. And so, I mean, I actually like your terminology where you were saying, you know, pluralistic monotheism. Um, because I do think that that is actually, I think for me, more of where I am at. And I mean, this is why sometimes, I mean, cause you had alluded to this earlier about the all emergent, um, you know, not to, not too many people allude to it. And I mean, sometimes I think I'm actually post emergent or even progressive in okay. that regard. Okay. Okay. We're going to pause right there. Got to pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding what you've heard today on this edition of fighting for the faith and uh, what you've heard, George, uh, tell us what he believes about God and the, and the Bible and things like that. Uh, you can email me. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Think Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. 
And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheap O'Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheap O'Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Hello, this is Reverend Matt Slick, president and founder of the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry. I wanted to let you know about our online schools of theology, apologetics, and critical thinking. Each school has been developed out of my more than 30 years of experience as a teacher, author, and defender of the Christian faith. With these schools, you can learn what you need to know about the Christian faith, how to defend it, and how to promote the gospel. The three schools are very easy to use, and you can go through them at your own pace. They are designed with short, succinct lessons that include topics such as Christian doctrine, the Bible, evangelism, the cults, atheism, evolution, Islam, logic, and critical thinking. Each lesson is followed by questions that you answer in a self-paced fashion. So, in order to grow in your Christian faith, please visit CARM.org, that's C-A-R-M dot O-R-G, and click on the link for the online schools at the top of the page. And enter the code PIRATE to receive a 10% discount. All right, we're back. Warning, <laughs> the Bible is really clear. There is only one true God, and he hasn't revealed himself in other religions. At least that's what the scriptures say. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute a mere $6.95 every month to Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, we're going to uh, dive right in uh, back into the interview here, and this will be the balance of the uh, my interview earlier today with George Ellerick in the UK, who is an author, a blogger, and uh, editorial contributor to the religion section of the Huffington Post. Here's uh, George Ellerick. Okay, now now one of the things you talked about was you know that that you think that people are kind of misreading Yahweh. And as a result of it, they come up with the, you described them as hardcore theological concepts. 
Now, here's the question I have for you. It's it's obviously clear from the way you're talking that you hold to some hardcore theological concepts yourself uh, to the point where you would say that sacrificing human beings and cutting yourself isn't consistent with the revelation of, of Yahweh. So how did you come to that conclusion rather than coming to the conclusion that sacrificing small children is a way of serving Yahweh? How did you decide that that truth was something that you need to hang on to uh, as opposed to reject or and embrace its opposite. Well, I mean, I would definitely say that I think that was a series of of, of different things. Now, as far as probably where my primary um, kind of inspiration for that is, obviously, I would say scripture. Um, but also, I think now since since I've started studying and and um, kind of looking at diverse points of view of God, not only outside of Christianity, but within Christianity, um, is just coming to understand that that there is a common thread amongst most religions, and that is um, compassion. And um, as you know, there's a huge strand of Christianity now um, that is focusing a lot on the social justice issue. And one of the things since I've studied the kind of Hebraic mindset is the whole idea that there's three over 3,000 verses dedicated to the poor, to the widow, you know, and um, to the oppressed. And so, I mean, I think for me, that's a pretty big deal. And I mean, a, a, a pretty big point that I think God is trying to get across. And so, I mean, I think for me, that's kind of my biggest inspiration for where that came from. Okay. Uh, I think that's fair. And by the way, I, I completely agree. I think God is very much concerned with the uh, the affairs of the poor and the oppressed, and that anybody who calls themselves a Christian who cares nothing for the poor and the oppressed, the widow, the hungry, um, we we've got we may have an issue there because that doesn't seem consistent with the fruit of the Holy Spirit described uh, uh, in the New Testament. You know, those who are truly regenerated, at least that's the way I'd describe it, and and uh, by by the gospel and by the good news of Christ, that uh, that their lives bear fruit on, in keeping with that and caring for. Uh, the poor and even working hard and setting aside part of what you earn in order to help meet the needs of others, I think is uh, absolutely clearly taught in the scriptures. So, okay, let's, uh, let me, see, let me see if I can ask you a question here about interpretation. One of the things I've noticed in reading uh, your articles now for several months is that you, you play around with words a lot and you seem to, uh, you kind of toy with, uh, multiple interpretations, and you kind of allegorize the scripture. What's your general approach to uh, to God's word, and and uh, and how you understand it? Well, I mean, I I see God's word as as holy. I I see it as important to my development. Um, but I don't stop there. I mean, for me, I I see it um as a holy book, but I also see that there are other holy books as well that can that God, if he chooses to, can still speak to us through them. Um, so I think that's my first, I think, you know, point of um, just that I want to get across is that I do see it as a holy and important book. And so I think one of the other things that I think has informed my kind of approach in as much as interpretation is just coming to understand the kind of Jewish understanding towards Scripture. And so, for example, and um, uh, Karen Armstrong has a great book out on this, is um, the idea and the, the realization that 
the, uh, the ancient Jews believed that there were at least 70 different interpretation for each verse. And also the uh, realization that the Hebrew language is, is a very metaphorical language. It's a very poetic language. And so most, if not all words, have more than one meaning and, and can send you down many, many different um, kind of paths of interpretation. And what I thought also was interesting, and um, Karen Armstrong talks about this as well, is that they weren't afraid of the divergence that came out of these different interpretations. Because um, there's, there's actually one point, I think it's in chapter one or two of her, the Bible, the uh, biography, is that she explains that there was a bit of trepidation when <clears throat> they were compiling the oral story you know, that, that they call Torah. Because they were afraid that people would try to approach it um, from a doctrinal uh, – with doctrinal intentions. And so um, I think for me that's mainly where I'm uh, coming from. And also I think one of my big passions at the moment is theopoetics. And so that um, basically simplistically put is, is it's kind of stepping outside of um, the kind of traditional view and saying, okay, looking at – uh, scripture as a metaphor, but and myth. But let me explain myth because myth tends to almost get bastardized, really, as, as in as much as um, meaning and and uh, the dictionary meaning. Mm-hmm. Myth, as in having a deeper meaning, and um, this is also a, a very Jewish thing. I mean, as I've been saying, they they always believed that there was more than just one meaning. And so I, I, that's a very long-winded response. But basically, that's kind of my inspiration behind where I'm journeying with Scripture. Yeah, I, I see, I can't even imagine what a mind map would look like if you had 70 possible interpretations for every single <laughs> verse. Did you, you, you're familiar with mind mapping? You know, they have, yeah, mi- yeah mind mapping software. I, I use mind mapping constantly. It, it, it helps organize my thoughts. And I, I'm just thinking, good night. If I had to do a mind map of 70 different interpretations on each and every verse, I mean, at, at this point, I, it, it sounds to me like it just basically turns into a subjective creative uh, exercise rather than and then understanding some kind of objective truth. How, how does the Holy Spirit then play into uh, you arriving at these 70 different interpretations or possible interpretations for any particular verse? Well, that's interesting that you bring up the Holy Spirit. I mean, for me, from what I've I've learned again with reading the Bible, the biography um, is also in the New Testament, and just even talking with um, some rabbinic scholars about this is is that the Holy Spirit actually was a metaphor. I mean, a, a nickname for God, and so it was it was just another name for God. And so, I mean, for me, or or we can even take it in another direction and say, well, basically. It is a spirit of God, but to, in, uh, in, in terms of, let's say you and I go and we um, build a house for somebody in need. Well, God's spirit was there in terms that we basically in, incarnated the spirit of God, the ethos, the ethic of God. And so in uh, terms of the Holy Spirit, to me, I, I see it as more of an ethic of God. It is something that when we perpetuate the kingdom of God, when we perpetuate grace, when we perpetuate love, when we per- perpetuate redemption, we are actually empowering our situation, ourselves and others with the spirit of God. And so, sorry, that's really long, but... <laughs> no, that's okay. I was tracking with you. 
Um, I think part of it, I think, is also realizing that God trusts us, that, that God trusts us to be able to actually interpret his scripture. Now, here's the other thing, because you, you, you used objective and subjective. What I think is also interesting, and, and I'm sure, especially if you've been following the whole emergent, even progressive conversation, is that <clears throat> excuse me, objective and subjective are really like the big, big words that pop up a lot. Mm-hmm. And, um, <clears throat> and uh, basically what I find is interesting is that if you talk even just to a regular, I don't know, just got out, out of college, degreed um, psychologist, what, what they would say is, listen, everybody is, is subjective. Everybody is. Mm-hmm. And we almost look at our subjectivity as, as a sin. We almost looked at, at the fact that we are subjective beings and that we experience things subjectively as something that's wrong with us. But what I find is increasingly encouraging and empowering is realizing that God made us that way, that 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 being subjective isn't something that's wrong with us. It's actually something that God has made us. And so to actually be fearful of that, I think, is to actually be fearful of the fact that we're created to be that. And so um, I think in terms of objectivity and the objective, I think that there is an objective truth. I think that there is an objective being called God, and I think that there are objective things that we can't experience. But I think that all of our subjective interpretations, all of our subjective experiences, all of our subjective um, um, church sermons, all of those things barely, barely touch the ob- objective itself. Okay, so then if though if I were to subjectively opine that I thought God – uh, wanted me to uh, kill my firstborn and uh, and stick him on an altar and burn him to death. Would you think I was receiving an incorrect subjective vibe from God at that point? Now, see, I would I would actually because because I've um, I've written another huff post on on that exact question. Well, at least inspired by that exact question. And I think for me, I would actually separate ethics from um, um, kind of the uh, the question that. That you are, because I do believe that there are objective ethics that that yes, probably were informed by ancient religious expression, even pre-Judaism. You know, I mean, I mean, there's there's Paleolithic and Neolithic cave writings and um, um, just uh, archaeological evidence that there were ethics even before the Bible itself was formed. And so, um, I I would say that basically ethics and theology. Although they can inform one another, I would say that they're actually different. And so, I mean, personally, between us, yes, I would definitely say that if you thought that your God or, or God told you that you should go and murder your son or, or anybody for that matter, yes, I would think that, um, that that was wrong. But I would come at it ethically, not theologically, if that makes sense. Okay, I, I get it. Okay, do you mind if we spend a little time you know, in the New Testament? Uh, yeah, go for it. Uh, yeah, definitely. So, just I mean, who do you think Jesus was? I mean, uh, he, you know, I mean, many people think that he claimed to be Yahweh of the Old Testament incarnate. It, it, is that what you believe about Jesus? And and what informs your theology regarding Jesus? Hmm. Well, I can tell you what informed my theology about Jesus, and then kind of go from there. Okay. Is you know, growing up in in the church, you do get informed of the very thing that you just. Um, claimed was that Jesus is the Son of God, you know, and um, 
Now, if I can just be completely vulnerable and open, I'm, I'm actually personally struggling with the person of Jesus as the son of God in the kind of orthodox conventional sense. And so because, and, and if you don't mind, I'll just share with a little bit about my journey into that struggle is because um, if you look up the word son of God, there, there's a few things going on. Um, one, the term itself wasn't a new term to uh, Christianity. In uh, fact, it was actually used by other religions, even pre in the pre-biblical era. And in uh, fact, there are archaeological findings that actually speak of kings and Egyptian pharaohs um, as sons of God. And there is actually one, and I've got to send you the link, is um, there's there's actually one chunk of just um, – Oh man, I can't get my words together. A, a, a clay tablet is a, a clay tablet. So it would be a cuneiform that, tablet then. There you go. There you go. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that basically talks about an, an Egyptian pharaoh being deemed the son of God by its followers, by, by the people it actually ruled over because there was this view that basically any king, any ruler, anybody who was in charge was sent down by God, the gods, to basically be an emissary, to be an ambassador, to show people, you know, who they are meant to be and and as the gods or God intended them. And so um, I think when we come to the person of Jesus and we hear the Son of God, we again almost take it um, literally. Now, this is where my struggle comes in, because if you ask me right now, do I believe that Jesus is the Son of God? I I would hold both. And what I mean by that is, yes, I would say yes, and then I, I would also say no, because that I am just struggling with that concept. And also, when you break it up in the Hebrew, the actual idea of son of God, part of the kind of um, phraseology itself um, uses the word ben. So like Jesus, I mean, ben Joseph, or, you know, um, so it's it's that whole idea. Now, if you look up the word ben in a Hebrew, there's actually two meanings for it. One is that you're in direct lineage, which that of course espouses to um, Jesus being the son of God in the traditional orthodox sense. And then also the next one over is um, in the likeness of. And so um, I think that it does sound the same, but when you actually break up the etymology, they're actually saying two different things okay. that aren't necessarily that, that aren't necessarily incompatible. And this is why I struggle with it is because I, um, I think that it is possible that Jesus could be the son of God, but I also think that he was here to show us how to be sons and daughters of God. And, and, and Paul catches on to this later on and he even uses that terminology. And so I think sometimes we actually pull that out of its context and say, no, he didn't mean that, even though that that term back then meant a direct connection to the divine. Okay. That's really Sorry. No, uh, no. I I just want to make sure I understand your Christology. I think you've done a fine job of explaining it. So then, uh, the, real quick question: Then uh, Jesus is being crucified uh, by the Romans. Uh, what was he accomplishing or doing on the cross? What do you think that event was all about? Well, I definitely think it was redemption. Okay. Um, but I don't. think It was redemption in again. And I mean, I don't want to use the term orthodox as in I think orthodox is bad because I think I said this before even we started recording is that I think that there needs 
to be room for um, people with with just different views, even within Christianity, about God and Jesus and and redemption and all of these different thoughts. So, I mean, I don't want to seem like I am turning orthodox views into the enemy because I don't see them as that way. Okay, so you think that Christ's death on the cross, though, was redemptive. Uh, what do you mean then by that being redemptive? Redemptive, you know, at least if you understand the Greek words being used there, kind of has to do with being uh, redeemed or purchased out of slavery. Is that your understanding of what was going on or something different? Um, I, I would actually agree with that. I mean, yeah, I mean, I would even take it a little bit of a step further and only because I just the actual Hebrew word behind redemption is pada, P-A-D-A-H. And so the idea behind that is actually not very far off from what you just said, um, except I think that they brought in just a bit more, and they actually say it's a self-imposed restriction. And so, I mean, and, and that could be sin, but I have come to seem sin in the Hebrew mind, which actually Shabbat, um, Shabbat.org has a great, great article on um, the kind of, at least the kind of updated view of what the Hebrew idea of sin was and is, which is the word shate. And so um, very close to another word, but. Um, <laughs> hey, we're doing family <laughs> radio here. Watch out. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. sorry. <laughs> um, but I think the, the, the idea behind it from at least um, current rabbinic scholars is that it was more about potential. And so it was more about how you weren't being who God intended you to be. But also they they also saw adversity um, as something that was much needed. And so and um, let me kind of quote uh, C.S. Lewis. You know, I, I I am I'm grateful to God for the sin that lives within me because it creates a dependence um, upon him from me. And so. Um, this isn't to say, listen, we need to go out and sin, but again, and I do differentiate between sin and ethics because I think sin, especially in the Hebrew mind and the way it's been explained to me just through conversations and through research is that it's, that's more about personal development and personal growth. So if you stuck this back into context, let's say Jesus runs into the woman who's caught in, in, you know, the middle of adultery and he's, and he's playing, you know, with the sand and, all of that. Um, and he says, listen, go and sin no more. Um, well, I mean, the actual word in sin is one is that it is an epidemic. The actual word shape is singular. And so um, he is saying, OK, yeah, don't go and do this. But I think even more so, especially in the Hebraic mindset, what he is actually instructing and what he is saying is actually quite empowering. And he's saying, listen, what you're doing, the behavior that you are participating in isn't the best you that God has intended. So what I want you to do is I want you to go and find who God intends you to be, you know? And, um, and, and I, I think that is a different rendering and a different idea than the orthodox idea of sin, which is almost this kind of idea of coursing through our veins, you know? Mm -hmm. Okay. And, uh, yeah. All right. So, um, uh, Jesus then, uh, does he physically, bodily, in actual history, rise from the dead or, or not? Oh, Chris, you're asking me the hard questions. Um, of course. I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, no, no, no. And I, I don't mean that in a, in a bad way. I mean, hard as in these are questions that I'm asking myself and I have not come up with anything solid other than 
that I don't see, um, like, for example, the yes and no that I shared about who Jesus was as being the son of God as a yes and no. I don't see the yes and no being mutually exclusive. I, I actually see that um, that the the uh, paradox, that the confusion, that that me not knowing the answer is OK, that I just have to trust God, you know, and um, now I'm not trying to get out of the answer and I will definitely get to it. Oh, don't worry. Um, I'll hold you to it. I, I, I'll keep you honest. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm, uh, I'm I'm trying to write these down so I don't forget them. Um, <laughs> uh, but I mean, I think. Oh man, I'm sorry. Listen, I totally blanked. What was the question? Did Jesus bodily and physically rise again from the dead in actual history or or was it something different? Well, I believe it is possible, yes. But when you actually look up the word resurrection, it doesn't mean come back to life. It actually just means renaissance. It means rebirth. So is it possible that Jesus rose from the dead? Definitely. I will I will I would say I I would agree that it is definitely possible that he could have um, risen from the dead. But again, looking at it from a theopoetic standpoint, what does it teach? Um, what does Christ's life, death and resurrection teach us? And so, like for me, I think where I'm at is rather than almost signing onto dotted lines and kind of almost um, giving a name to my theological Kind of standpoints i'm i'm more turning scripture back on me and saying well okay listen that's great and maybe that is possible and maybe i could be 100 percent wrong but i think if there was any purpose for scripture and i'm sure that there are many but i mean i'm focusing on this one now is that it is there to inform me on how to be a better person and for me, how to better love and forgive and embrace the stranger and love the widow, you know. And so I think for me, I'm less about do I sign on to this or do I believe this about this? And I'm more about, well, how can we just heal the world? How can we how can we do things that promote Christ and what he stood for? Does that make sense? Sure. It makes perfect sense. I, I think, again, you're doing a fine job of lucidly explaining your position. Okay, then uh, you talked about Bart Ehrman being a uh, somebody who's influenced you. Uh, what do you think about the uh, the New Testament Gospels? Do you think that they're accurate uh, eyewitness biographies of Jesus, or that they're latecomers that contain some correct information, but mostly embellished information about Jesus? What's your view regarding the historicity and the biographical eyewitness nature of the Gospels? Um. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that basically when you're looking at Scripture, that you kind of have to realize that there is an agenda, that there, there, are, that there are authors, that there are communities. And, I mean, as, as you may know, there, there's even scholarly debate on whether the actual Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John actually themselves wrote it or whether it was communities that followed them and, and compiled the works afterwards. And so um, I think for me – I do see it as flawed, but that does not mean it's not holy. And um, again, because I don't see those things as mutually exclusive. Um, but for me, I do think that each one has its own agenda. When you look at Matthew chapter 1 and you look at the genealogy, which of course, and I don't even know if you've ever felt this way, but I've always thought genealogies were useless and they were boring and I always fell asleep through them. 
But um, when they're they're when, a little dry and gravelly, I, yeah. I admit they don't they don't necessarily hold a you know a Sunday school uh, class full of uh, second graders <laughs> captive, if you know what I mean. That's yeah, that's what I'm really heading for. You know, I mean, you you kind of need Red Bull and then the genealogy. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, I mean, I um, they aren't the most exciting things, but if you notice something. Um, that that basically the genealogy is actually set out in groups of 14. Now, if you break it up, this is going to kind of mix a little bit of the kind of um, the numerical metaphors um, that the Hebrews were known for doing and uh, is basically in a, a the actual groups are 14. Now, as you know, one of the most prominent kings in all of Jewish history was King David. Yeah, and that. Yeah. The, 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 some of the prophecy was basically saying, okay, this, this Messiah, you know, is, is going to be from the lineage of King David, so to speak, right? And so the idea behind this is that if you basically take um, the uh, groups of 14 and what you get is the numerical value of D, right, being mm-hmm. six, mm-hmm. I mean, being four, sorry, and um, V being six and then d being four again so you have dvd which as you know hebrews sometimes set up in in the triple consonant and so what you have is dvd which is the same exact name spelling in hebrew for david and so what you see is matthew or the Matthean community saying listen this is who we think jesus is this is the messiah and so what we come to understand is that yes there is and agenda. Yes, there is something that they are trying to teach other people, that they are trying to um, get others to believe and on on board with. Now, whether they were right or wrong, I'm 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 not in a, a place to actually say that. But what you do see is yes, that these were humans um, being inspired by the message of Jesus to go and inspire and empower and enable other humans with this message of Jesus. Okay. So what do you think the gospel is? I mean, we've been called to proclaim good news. What what is exactly the good news that we're supposed to tell everybody about? I mean, when the when the Yankees win the World Series, everyone in New York thinks that that's great news. So what's the <laughs> what's the great news that we're supposed to be talking about? Well, I think it's it's it definitely can be, again, the orthodox point of view. I'm I'm definitely open to that. Um, but I would, I would again add to that, um, and I would be coming from the the Aramaic word for gospel, which is sevarta. And um, sorry, I just turned Italian. That's not even how you say it, but it's sevarta. <laughs> um, I don't even know. Yeah, Jesus was a you're, little short, you know, pizza yeah, maker. Yeah, that's right. You're an you're an Italian Aramaic guy. Okay, we're yeah. blending cultures <laughs> and languages as we speak here on the fly. All right. I mean, Jesus had, you know, a bicycle mustache, you know, played the accordion. Um, and owned a monkey, too. I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I mean, it's it's Savartha. And, and the actual word has no other phraseology, no other phraseology behind it. It just means hope. And so to me, I, I see it this way. When we're going into situations. So let's say you and I were on a on a mission trip somewhere. Let's say we're going to Zimbabwe, you know, and, and Mugabe's doing some really just 
not cool stuff right now. And, um, and, and he hasn't been. But let's say we go in there and Mugabe's just closed down the educational system. Let's say we, we stay there for three, four years, right? And, and, and we actually somehow get the educational system open. And I mean, I'm, I'm being very simplistic, but, um, we have actually brought the gospel to them, right? And so when, when we bring hope into a situation, we are actually introducing the gospel and see hope changes lives. I mean, you can even ask people who aren't even religious and they'll tell you a, a story of hope that changed their life. Right. And why? Because it was hope. And so I think when when Jesus came to earth or was 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 born, I think his message of gospel was this message of hope that included healing. I mean, it wasn't just hope and here's, you know, here's a five dollar to the homeless guy. But it was this holistic, integrated, organic hope that evolved out of who he was and into the situations that he encountered. Okay, so so then using your pluralistic monotheism, then uh, l- let's say that uh, two Muslims decide that they're going to go to uh, Kenya and help dig freshwater wells, they're bringing the gospel then. Yeah, definitely. Because I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that any religion has the monopoly on what the gospel is. Okay, so so the gospel then is bringing tangible, world-changing, life-changing hope to people. Definitely, yeah, yeah, tangible, yeah. I w- and and I would say that that would be a huge requisite. Okay, so yeah, it has, actually, is it something you can kind of put your your hands on and touch, and you know that kind of thing. Yeah, and I I, I mean I am sure that there's also you know the gospel through. You know, like a Jewish practice of sitting Shiva where you just sit and you mourn with somebody, you know, that is bringing them hope because they're not alone and that there is more to life. And, you know, so, yeah, I mean, definitely tangible and not necessarily in, you know, I can go grab the door. Hello? Hmm. You there? I'm here. You got you got disconnected for a second. Oh, sorry about that. It's the pond. The, the the what? It's it's the pond between us. Oh, okay, I see. Yeah, okay. Hopefully, we're using satellites to bounce the signal. Anyway, okay, so <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. We'll just, we'll just keep going, and uh, you know, I'll see if you know, maybe I can kind of edit this up a little bit, and I'll, I'll inform people that there was a little bit of a break in our connection here. Okay, so all right, so let me let me ask you this question. Um, but hypothetically speaking, and I know these are kind of awkward types of questions, but let let's say that you know I I just I find out from my doctor that I have terminal cancer, and then I'm going to be dead pretty much uh, two days from now. And I and I say, George, you know you've been such a great friend to me. Could you be at my side at, at my passing? And so you fly across the pond, and and you're there bedside with me. In my last minutes here on Earth, what kind of hope can you offer me as a dying person? Well, I think that poses the question that basically hope has to be something that um, that is also tangible after I die. Okay. And um, and again, here's here's something uh, just being vulnerable again. I do struggle with the idea of heaven 
because um, and and um, I just recently wrote a blog on this is is the uh, Hebrew idea of 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 heaven. Even the word for heaven was actually the same word for sky, right? Now, yeah, yeah I, I understand right? that. Yeah. Okay. And and so um, when you actually look it up, it even explains it more in scientific terms, as in the the firmament, right? And so the gap between us and space that was considered heaven. You know, and I mean, you even see some of that ideology coming out in um, Paul's writings as as well when he's talking about the heavens. He's he's talking about plural, you know. And um, but I think the hope that I can give them is that God does love them, and that the hope that I can give them is that God does accept them, that that God already embraces them. That, that no matter what is on the other side, that God cherishes them. And no. so for me, I think that's more tangible than something that you can't see, that, that's something that you get taught that might or might not be there. Okay, so you, you're not sure if there is something on the other side, but if it is, you're certain that God embraces them and loves them, and that's the hope that you would offer them. Definitely. Okay. Um, okay. So then, you know, like in the uh, in the uh, ancient creeds, uh, Nicene Apostles' Creed, it's it, the uh, ancient Christian communities. They they confess that they believed that uh, Christ was going to return in glory to judge the living and the dead. Well, I mean, ultimately, you know, fast forward all of this, you know, sometime down the line in history, uh, is what's eschatology look like for you? Is is Christ returning to judge the living and the dead? Is there a hell? I mean, do people uh, is is when Christ returns, are there going to be people that he separates into two different camps? What what does it all look like? Uh, to you, uh, you know, all the way down the line, wherever the end of Kronos time is? Well, I think that's an important question, and I don't think me as one person has the definitive answer. I can just share, I guess, my view on it. And um, just from studying and kind of jumping into just the different Hebraic perspectives and all of that kind of good stuff is the idea behind well, all right, let me let me kind of go back to the whole Jesus person, um, because I think that's an important aspect of it. Um, the actual idea of Messiah, you know, as as played out in Isaiah, you know, the Isaiah 53, the suffering mm-hmm. servant. Mm-hmm. Um, what was really interesting is as I've studied it, um, there were there were other camps. And again, um, Karen Armstrong talks about this as well, is that there were camps of of Israelites and I don't mean necessarily physical camps but there were camps of thought within the kind of Israelite um cosmology that believed that the Messiah wasn't going to be a person but that the Messiah that the suffering servant was actually Israel itself mm-hmm. um, and there was also a strand of those even within that camp that actually thought the Messiah wasn't a person it was an event it was it was a time in the future when humanity would come together and um, work together. So when you look at the early church, you know, in the book of Acts and they kind of all pooled their resources and they worked together. You know, that also becomes a metaphor of what the Messianic age, as um, some of the kind of modern day Jews refer to it as, as um, this period where all of humanity chooses to work together, and that will usher in 
the messianic kingdom. That that itself is the kingdom that Jesus was 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 trying to perpetuate. Okay, and so so then. Let me see if I'm hearing you right. So the idea here is is that really the end goal is to come up with a way to, using that phrase again, this monotheistic pluralism, to kind of unite all the different disparate tribes and get everybody kind of pulling in the same direction to really transform how everything is done here on earth. That's the issuing into the messianic kingdom? Well, that's... I, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, but but I would say that there is a caveat to it, um, and you can check this out at Moshiach.com. Um, they have a lot of information on this, actually. And uh, but I would say that the caveat isn't that we all have one world religion or that we all have one world anything. I mean, if there is a working together, if there is a harmony, it's the harmony that embraces the diversity. Okay. And so. Do you, do you know what I mean? And so, and it, so it's kind of like a diverse global community then that everybody sees each other, you know, in this loving and compassionate embrace then. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And then works together. And this is, again, where I'd make the distinction between theology and ethics, where they do work together ethically. And I mean, this is what I think is so interesting. And, and I'm sure, especially in, in your study as well, that you that you have seen that there is a common thread amongst most major religions, as we talked about earlier, which was compassion. Sorry about that break there. I, okay. All right. So I, I, okay. I, so that issues in the messianic kingdom. Uh, okay. So what happens when we get to this, to this state, then that, that ushers it in. What does it mean though, to, to usher this in? What, what, what does it look like on the other side of whatever that hump is that we're trying to get over? In terms of, you mean death or life, or you mean just the Messianic Age? Or? Yeah, I'd say the Messianic Age. Let's kind of focus in on, you know, the, the earthly piece of this whole thing. So, because I, I think you've explained what you're thinking on the other side of it. I mean, so, but talk to me about, you know, this idea that, uh, you know, that we have this pluralistic uh and diverse thing that we're all accomplishing together and the good news is that we're providing hope for everybody and and let's say we're able to solve all of these big problems and and you know kind of end all of this strife and pain and war and and stuff that happens you know does Christ return after we've all pulled together to accomplish this I mean what happens at that point well i mean i would say that basically i mean in in terms of the physical Christ returning again, that's something I struggle with as well. But again, I don't see what I'm, I'm about to share as mutually exclusive. But I mean, I I see that basically the kind of whole Christological return was terminology of hope that was used back then. I mean, if if you look at Scripture through the eyes of an oppressed people, then a lot of their stories make sense. A lot of the reasons why they worship God as Yahweh, make complete sense. And so, I mean, they are trying to make sense of their oppression, but also give hope outside of their oppression, on the other side and beyond their oppression. And so the way that I kind of see it is that this messianic age is Christ, that, that, that if anything, because um, as you may already know, the actual term Christ wasn't exclusive to Jesus of Nazareth. 
And in uh, fact, if you just study the uh, history behind it, the actual term was used in the Old Testament for just prophet. So it was another title because it, all it meant was anointed one. So it was someone who was anointed or set apart. And so, for example, when you actually look up Isaiah, and there's some great resources on, on this, um, I, Isaiah the prophet or Isaiah the Christ. And um, we, we almost single out the term Christ, and we, we separate it out in our westernized ideology and say, well, Christ means the one who came and died for our sins and um, resurrected and who's going to basically give us fire insurance. Mm-hmm. And um, yet the term itself is actually just indicative of somebody who was chosen, who was set apart. And I think, if anything, what Christ came to do was to show that we too could be just like him. And I mean, we do use terminology. For example, yes, we're going to go be Christ in our community. But I don't think we take that far enough because I think what he was showing us is, yes, I am the anointed one, but so are you. And I mean, this is why he says, yes, you are the light of the world. And and then he also says before that, I am the light of the world. He is making that distinct connection, you know? Okay, so then we're little anointed ones, so to speak. Okay. Yeah, hobbit. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, um, so then, based on what you're saying, should should I mean, if we were to kind of spin this out into some kind of a, a you know, history that we can expect, we should probably expect that the Earth is just going to keep going the way it's been going, uh, you know, since the beginning, and just keep going and going and go, like the Energizer Bunny. I mean, we shouldn't a hundred years from now, a million years from now, this thing is still going, but maybe we've cleaned things up here. Is is that what I'm hearing? I think, yeah, yeah, in, in, in part. And the reason why I say that is because, as I said before, I'm, I'm not signing on to the dotted line of that. This is just where I'm at right now. Okay. But this is – so in your journey, this is kind of where your thinking is at. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Uh, all right. I, I can't think of any more questions to ask. Is there anything you'd like to get off your chest you know, while we're on the <laughs> – <laughs> Um. I think, you know, you pretty much allowed me to do that. You know, I almost felt like I was in Catholic confession, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, well, yeah. Oh, wait. I have to say Latin. Absolvite. I, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Where the rosary beads? I'm waiting for those ones. Uh, oh, man. <laughs> I'm just. No, I, I hopefully that wasn't Catholic confession. It was more. I, I was really interested to kind of get your views on, you know, because obviously the topics that I've brought up have to do with, you know, some major categories of theology that have historically been important within the historic Christian faith. And, uh, and so it, it's interesting to hear where you're at in all of this. And um, it sounds kind of an eclectic thing that you've put together and still are constructing, if I'm hearing you right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that's a good word, actually. And I mean, I, I think I kind of take a theopoetic stance towards deconstruction and reconstruction and what that means for me is i see deconstruction as a life long journey i don't see it as one day i'll come to the objective truths or one day i'll come to the answers i kind of see i kind of see my reconstruction in terms of ethics and how i'm treating the other and how i'm loving um the outsider how i am using compassion to change circumstances um, locally and globally, whereas deconstruction to me is more the philosophical, theological, kind of truth-based action. 
I mean, action, asking oriented journey, I think for me doesn't have an end, but I think my reconstruction in and of itself is actually part of an ethical process that will constantly also be reconstructing in the sense that I can always find better ways to love someone else. Right. Interesting. So how long have you been writing for the uh, Huffington Post? How did you, uh, get, how did you land that gig? <laughs> I get uh, asked that quite a bit, actually. Um, I, uh, well, I just signed up for the emergent kit, really, and it just came with it. Um, yeah, there no, we go again. I, Apparently, you could just you know send in your 1995 yeah. to Emergent Village, and they'll send you a kit. It includes a a contract where you can be writing editorials <laughs> at the Huffington Post. Yes. Yeah, I, I forgot to say that, that that that's like a hundred installments in 1995. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> I, I, sorry about that. Um, no, uh, I actually um. I think you've actually referred to Samir before, Samir Simonovich. Yes, uh, Simonovich. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've we've chatted on Skype actually before, and um, we got to talking because um, we both do kind of interfaith development work, and um, found out through him that he was friends with the editor at the Huffington Post, and kind of got um, indirectly kind of um, introduced to him. And so just started really kind of saying, hey, you know, here's here's an article. You know, I love writing. It's my passion. Um, what do you think? And the next thing I know, he says, we love it. Um, here's a blogger, you know, login and username and just, you know, write as and when. So it was really, really quite cool. All right, cool. Now, you have a book coming out. Tell me about your book. What's it about? Yeah, um, it's, it's called Jesus Bootlegged. Um, it's with the publisher... <laughs> Um, oh, books. Jesus, the moonshiner. What? No, <laughs> Jesus bootlegged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, maybe. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I'm just kidding. No, but um, uh, it's funny that you say that because my foster mom. Well, no, let's let's not get into that. But anyhow, she was involved in a group when she was a child that made the moonshine, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But anyhow, that's that comes with the emergent kid as well. Um, right. Yeah. Nothing yes. like good old Kentucky moonshine. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. The one that cleans your soul. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, just put a little wasabi in it. And it'll give you quite a kick. Yes, you have an Eastern kind of effect to it, really. Um, but no. Um, oh, man, I just blinked again, bro. I'm your sorry. book, your book. Your, tell me about your book. What, what, it's, what it's about? It's Jesus bootleg. We know the name of it. But what do you mean by bootlegging Jesus? Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely not Jesus drunk. I mean Jesus stolen. And so um, that's that's kind of what the whole idea is, is that basically kind of looking at the message of Jesus and looking at it um, with its global implications and saying, well, I think throughout history and throughout time, um, the church at large. So this doesn't include the churches that may not be doing this, but the church at large has pretty much hijacked his message from within and said, this is, you know, this is a message that was meant for us and will occasionally share it with others. And so the whole idea behind it and the whole presumption behind the message of Jesus is that it can change lives. It actually can empower others. And the love that Jesus talks about can um, can really, really transform the hearts of other people. And so it's, it's kind of a mix of that. And then it's also the kind of Aramaic look at his message. And so, I mean, I think I sent you a couple chapters of it. Um, yeah, you did. But. Yeah, and, and so basically um, the rest of the book, um, the next eight um, 
nine chapters looks at his message through the Aramaic and predominantly focuses on on the uh, parables. Okay. So when is your book coming out and who's publishing it? Uh, it's about, um, from what I know, it's going to be about six months. So it's still a little ways. And the publisher is called O Books. It's a UK one. Okay. And it'll be available on Kindle here in the United States and other places? Uh, yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I've uh, checked that with them. Okay. And you can also get it at the website as well. All right. Well, you know, this is kind of odd. I, I haven't talked about this anywhere, but there is a chance with sometime within the next 12 months that I might be making a, uh, a small trip, a short trip to the UK. Uh, that's you know, something that I'm currently working on. We're spending some time in, in Liverpool. And, oh, nice. and so if I, uh, it, you know, if this thing comes together and does what it's going to do, uh, then I'd love to look you up and, uh, you know, and, and chat with you face to face. No, that'd be brilliant. And in fact, if you are in the area and you know, when you're coming out, just let me know. And, uh, we'll, uh, We'll throw you out a couple blankets on the floor, <laughs> obviously a pet. But I mean, you know, you you just let us know, and and we'll hook you up. I appreciate that. Well, George, yeah. thanks for coming on Fighting for the Faith, and um and for really taking the time to uh, spell out uh, where you are and your journey, and uh, where your current what you're currently thinking and it, what your current thinking is on uh, these important theological and biblical topics. Yeah, thank you, Chris. I mean, I really, really appreciate what you're doing. And I mean, I do want everybody else to hear that because I think it's important that um, that people realize that your voice is just as important as mine or anybody else for that matter. And so, you know, I think you have a lot to bring and offer to the conversation. So just thank you for your hospitality and inviting me on. And sorry about all of the brain kind of aneurysms that were going on <laughs> during the whole thing. Oh, no problem. No problem. You you were you did just fine and you shouldn't feel nervous you'll i'm sure you'll do more radio in the future so <laughs> thanks bro i really appreciate it all right thank you this is uh it was right. signing off with george elric uh, from the uk thank you very much okay that's all of it what'd you think again i would like to get your emails and to get your feedback and see what you think what you can do in comparing what you've heard today on this edition of fighting for the faith and uh, and to you know comparing it to the clear teachings of of God's word, the scriptures, and uh, if you're going to send it to me though, uh, make sure that you flag the subject line as George Ellerick debrief. That's right. If you flag it as George Ellerick debrief, then my email program will set that off to the side and flag it for me so that uh, it's easier to spot those in the pile of email that comes across my uh, computer on a daily basis. So again, I would love to get your feedback and for you to uh, tell me what you thought uh, in, in, in taking what George has said and his ideas and, uh, and responding to them uh, and then offering a biblical counterpoint, if you could. So again, my email address is uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. It's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, pirate Christian. Till next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.